Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. Those who are going to Little Worship can be dismissed at this time, and if you're staying in here with us, I invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, or I guess you could follow along there in your bulletin, Luke chapter 7, 18 through 35. You know, I was thinking this week, it, it, all the time, it, it's super daunting and almost a, a comical task for a pastor to take, or any Bible teacher to take, just this timeless truth uh, that is God's Word, like this Word that has sustained God's people for thousands of years and squeeze something that large into like a 30-minute sermon. You know, it's, it's just almost cute how, how we do that. And yet, uh, such is the foolishness of preaching, right, that God uses to save uh, and equip those who believe. Um, so with that said, this morning, this passage is big, and it's, there's, gonna be, there's several really important verses in our passage, just timeless truths that we're not going to be able to get to, but I'll cliff note just one before we read it. And it's verse 28. Uh, in that verse, Jesus gives one of his highest compliments ever. He said, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Talking about John the Baptist. And uh, you know, t- today we throw around that term great all the time, right? Just watch ESPN, uh, listen to your kids. We, you know, like Michael Jordan was great, right? Wayne Gretzky was great. Uh, Tom Brady, depending if he's retired or not, he either is or was made the greatest of all time, right? Okay, but if Jesus said that John was the greatest of all time, then, I mean, could it be that maybe our definition's a bit off? Um, which, which begs the question, okay, well, what made John so great? Because our passage doesn't mention anything about him winning a Super Bowl. Uh, it doesn't mention anything about him establishing a really successful business, no, if anything, the passage we're about to read shows John, really, he, he's not doing well. He's not in a good situation. And, and so, we're reminded again that God's economy is different than ours, different from the world's. And so, what made John great had nothing to do with him. No, what made John great was his message, which he was the one above all of the prophets that had the privilege of, of pointing to the Messiah, of preparing the way of salvation. And so, in other words, what made John great was Jesus. And y'all, it's the same with us. Because right after he paid that compliment to John, Jesus then turned and paid all who were in him, all of his people, a compliment as well. Jesus said, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than John. So again, he's talking about us, those of us who like, we're not that great, but we believe, you know, Um, not about what we do, not because of who we are, it's not because of our batting average or our crop yield. No, the best thing about us is Jesus. In him, we are partakers of his great salvation and hope. So it's really, it's all about Jesus, right? So with that said, let's dive in. Uh, to God's word. Luke seven eighteen through 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. 
And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to, to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And in that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John the Baptist. Jesus said, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A, a reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in the king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet... This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is God's Word. And by the way, Jesus just summarized the spectrum of complaints that occur in churches, right? It's, there's all, people are never going to be happy, right? They weren't happy with John the Baptist or Jesus. Um, so let's pray. Real quick, Father, may you bless this reading of your word. May your spirit come. Uh, give us ears to hear. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So what, what do so John the Baptist, uh, the Apostle Thomas, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, C.S. Lewis, Mother Teresa, Michael Kruger, Alyssa Childers, and Richard Owens all have in common? Well, all of them, I should say all of us, are Christian workers, writers, or pastors who at some point or points have all wrestled with doubts and have found themselves in what's been termed the dark night of the soul. And it's a place where um, if you've been there, you don't wish that on your worst enemy. And look, before we get too far into our passage, really because of this cultural moment of where we've got Christian celebrities you know, deconstructing almost on a weekly basis, I believe with all my soul that we first need to pause and just recover a biblical understanding of doubt. Because there's this idea out there, which I believe is from Satan, 
that says doubt is bad. That to doubt as a believer means you lack faith. It, it means you're falling away. It, and true believers, you never have doubts. And, and you, know, you know how that thing is like you don't talk about your mama, you can talk about everybody else, but don't talk about mama. Well, there are some branches of Christianity uh, where it's kind of like that with John the Baptist. Because he is their homeboy. Like all of their theology is based off John the Baptist. And you don't talk bad about John the Baptist. And so scholars will argue, and this is across the board, scholars will argue that John wasn't the one having the doubts here. That his faith was strong. Like John the Baptist never wavered. And they argue that John the Baptist, remember, isolated and languishing in a prison, um, was simply asking Jesus a question for the sake of his weaker faith disciples. Which, by the way, that theology has a very toxic side effect to the church today. Um, If the church culture says only weak Christians have doubts, do you think people who have doubts will feel safe to come and share them at the church or share them with other Christians? Um, No, they'll feel unwelcomed. And so what happens is they'll shoulder them alone or, or they'll take them maybe to their unbelieving friend to talk about them, which of course they'll get great advice there. Um, they'll take them everywhere they should except for the church. And, and so I think I've, I've told you this, I was struck by one of our former members having lunch with me, sitting down and telling me just out of the blue that for the past several years he's been having these problems. He doesn't believe any of it's true. I'm like, why have you not told me this before? He didn't tell any of us. Um, so y'all, and, and this isn't just something I can do. Like We all have to do this. Could we all create, help create a church culture at Westminster in which questions are welcome, uh, in which doubts are welcome. Because uh, this is the place, this is the best place to, to bring your doubts. And so um, some of us think that faith is like this house of cards, and if you have just one doubt, um, then it will trigger this domino effect, and before you know it, then your entire house of cards of your faith will fall. And interestingly, though, that is not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible teaches us that salvation never has been nor never will be about the strength of our faith, right? our ability to hold on to it. That our salvation is in the object of our faith, Jesus. It is Jesus who holds us fast. And what's the hymn say that we sing often? It's, His grace has brought us safe this far, and His grace will... Well, what? It'll kind of drop us off at the edge of town. It, it, it will lead us home. He's, going, he's got us. And so doubt in itself is not a bad thing. In fact, it can be used by God for good. Frederick Buechner wrote, Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. It's good. It can be good. Austin Fisher wrote, Christianity has suffered more casualties from false faith than from honest doubt. And that may be why Jude, in writing to the early Christians, he wrote, have mercy on those who doubt. Um, In his book, My Bright Abyss, Christian Wyman wrote, he said, doubt is painful, but its pain is active rather than passive, purifying rather than stultifying. Far beneath it, no matter how severe its drought, how thoroughly your skepticism seems to have salted the ground of your soul, faith, durable faith, is steadily taking root. That God, God works maybe especially through doubt. And I guess we've got to 
make sure we know that the difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is I can't believe. Um, unbelief is I won't believe. And so there's a difference. Andrea Lucado, Lucado concludes, she says, God doesn't do nothingness. It's, it reminds us of that passage from Isaiah 55 where we say, for, or see, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and they do not return, but they water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that comes out from my mouth. God says it shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent. So, yes, um, John was asking a question because in this moment he was doubting. And so before he lost his head to Herod, for a time he lost his head to doubt. And that's okay. Because in doing so, he taught us what to do with our doubts as well. So when the dark night of the soul comes... When doubts assault us, what do we do? What do we do, Christians? Uh, well, in our passage, we see that there's at least there's lots of things, but in our passage, we see two things. First, we take our doubts to Jesus. You know, we don't just like wall off. We, we actually take our doubts to Jesus. And then second, we trust and remember that, oh yeah, God is God and we're not. So first, we take our doubts to Jesus. You know, up until this point, Everything John had, had done, everything he had said had been bold. Uh, John the Baptist was like a man on fire. You know, he went out and he was preaching in the desert and, and people flocked to see him. And Jesus reminded us that it wasn't like John was passing out free candy bars. Like he wasn't a seeker-sensitive, soft peddler of sin. Like his main sermon was, y'all got to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And John the Baptist said things like, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. And if you don't bear good fruit, then you're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Merry Christmas, right? And so John, like, he was the one who got to point to Jesus and say, oh, and by the way, he is the one, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one we hope in. And so as Jesus tells us, John wasn't a reed shaken by the wind which meant his moral compass didn't point whichever way the wind of popularity blew. And so in his fearlessness and boldness, according to Herod anyway, John went a little too far. Because if you remember, and Josh read for us this morning, uh, Herod went to Rome, and Herod messed around and fell in love with his brother's wife. And he seduced her, and then he went back to Judea, he divorced his wife, and then he took his brother's wife to be his wife. And so John, being the prophet that he is, called him out on it. Well, the next thing John knew, he was in a dungeon, <laughs> shackled, awaiting his, his death. And so imagine, if you can, John alone. He's cut off from what's happening. Emotionally spent. Circumstances, not great. And then there's the problem of expectation because if you remember, John called Jesus the Messiah. Like, this guy, he's, he's the guy. And every Jew knew that when the Messiah showed up, the Messiah was going to kick some tires and light some fires. But yet, at least from where John was sitting in his dungeon, it didn't seem like that was happening, right? And so you can, you can ask, like, where's the recompense, Jesus? Where, where's the judgment? And so alone in his cell... He began to wrestle with a question. 
which is really the question behind all doubts, isn't it? It's, Jesus, are you the one? Or should we look for another? Shall I look for another source of hope? Another source of the good life? Now, isn't that the question that we're asking really on a weekly, daily basis? We walk around through life asking, are you the one, Jesus? Are you really the one? Or, or maybe something else is the one. We're always asking. We ask that of our idols. Are you the one? Are you the one that we can stake our whole lives on? And especially when our circumstances are like, in John's case, our expectations of what God, we think God should be doing and what He seems to be doing don't line up. And so we ask, are you the one or have I been wasting my time? Should I seek another Savior, another version of the good life? Okay, well notice John didn't sit alone with his doubts. But he took his doubts, he took his question to Jesus. And I love this because John didn't say, Jesus, if you're the one, if you are the one, then you would free me from my prison. If you were the one, then you would make my life better. If you were the one, you wouldn't let my loved one die. No, John simply asked, are you the hero? So as to say, Jesus, if you're the one, I trust you. If you are the one, everything else makes sense. Jesus, if you're the one, then I'll be okay facing persecution. I'll be okay in the face of cancer. I'll be okay in the face of miscarriage. Like I'll be okay in the hard. No matter my circumstances, Like if you are the one, I can die right here in this dungeon. And I'm good. If you're the one. It's as J.C. Ryle said, true Christians are the only happy people because they have sources of happiness entirely independent of this world. So John doesn't ask to be delivered from the prison. He just wants to know if Jesus is the one. So, so John took his doubts to Jesus, and notice how Jesus responded. And, you know, we went through the Sunday school class, gentle and lowly. We see Jesus' heart here. Because Jesus didn't say, you weak faith loser. Dude, you're a preacher. What a hypocrite. Doesn't say what we would probably say. No, he just engaged John's doubt. He just engaged John's question. But he didn't give John this fancy philosophical argument of the existence of God, though there are plenty of those out there. No, he just simply reminded John of who he was. So y'all, our faith as Christians, and this is what makes Christianity so different from other religions, is our, our faith it really isn't based on a philosophy. Our faith isn't based on these ephemeral ideals or really even moral requirements or mental gymnastics. No, our faith is based on the historical person and work of Jesus, period. Do you believe that Jesus really was who he said he was? And do you believe that Jesus really did do what the Bible claims he did? Who was he and what did he do? So Jesus said, here's your empirical evidence Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And now that, as the last several weeks, we've seen that, I mean, that was literally what Jesus had been doing, but that was also code for what he would do. And so when John heard that, he would have heard that, that all of that, like Jesus is quoting all these prophecies throughout Isaiah about the Messiah. And so in other words, Jesus was quoting Old Testament Scripture saying, John, I'm your guy. John, I'm the one. Now, just because it doesn't seem like I'm working in your current situation where you are right this second, 
doesn't mean I'm not. And so John was, was honest with his doubt. And he took his doubt, he took his question to Jesus. Um, but then Jesus said something interesting, which brings us to the second point, and this is another big, big help in the middle of doubt. God is God, and, and we're not. And that means a couple of things. You know, all other religions teach that, that we bring at least something to the table, right? Um, and that's why Jesus said, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You know, uh, John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry, it really caused this uh, spiritual civil war within the Hebrew society. Um, because his baptism required confession of sin. Like it required you acknowledging that you don't have what it takes and that God needs to save you. And, and sinners, of course, I mean, sinners responded by coming out of the woodwork. Heck yeah, I need help. But the religious people of the day, you could even say the southern Christians of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were offended by that. Because they said, how dare you tell me I'm not enough? Because, I mean, they, they prided themselves on how good they were, on how well they kept the law. And sure, they didn't keep it perfectly, but they thought that their doing and their trying, uh, that was sufficient. And, and, and so this offensive divide continues today, by the way. And so there's a reason why Christianity is, you could argue, is stalling out in the Western world. Maybe it's in decline even while it's exploding in the poor areas of the world, you know, in Africa and South America and China, it's, it's the poor who are getting the gospel <laughs> because they know they're not fooling anyone. You know, they're, they're not offended by the news that they need saving because they know they need saving. And, and yet it's the, the educated, the successful, don't want the gospel because they're offended by it. Because they want, they want a religion of merit. You just tell me what to do and I can do it. Because I know the right people. They, they think they have what it takes to earn it. And there's this divide. I, I'm sure I've shared this before. If y'all remember it, I apologize. Um, there's this old story, really old story, about a farmer, a mule, and a dog who were injured in a collision with a transfer truck. And the farmer, uh, the farmer decided to take the trucking company to court. He was going to sue the trucking company. But in court, the trucking company's lawyer argued or said, Farmer Joe, didn't you say at the scene of the accident that you were perfectly fine? And Joe answered, well, well you see, I, I just loaded up my mule Bessie into the trailer, and me and my dog were in the pickup truck, and we were pulling out when, and the lawyer interrupted and said, I, I didn't ask for the details. Just answer the question, at the scene of the accident, did you not say that you were perfectly fine? Farmer Joe started again. He said, well, see, I just got in my mule Bessie, loaded up into the trailer, and me and my dog were in the pickup truck, and we were pulling out when, and the lawyer objected again and said, Judge, I'm trying to establish the fact that at the scene of the accident, this man said that he was perfectly fine. Now, several weeks after the accident, he's trying to sue my client. I believe he's a fraud. Please tell him to simply answer the question. Well, by this time, of course, the judge, he kind of wanted to see what Farmer Joe had to say, see how his story played out, so he allowed Joe to talk. So the farmer said, well, well as I was saying, 
I just loaded up Bessie, my mule, into the trailer, and me and my dog were in the truck, and we were pulling out with this huge semi-truck, barreled through the stop sign, and smacked the truck, my truck right in the side. Bessie was thrown into one ditch, and my dog and I were thrown into another ditch, and I was hurting real bad, and I didn't want to move. But I could hear my mule Bessie over there groaning, and I knew she was just in terrible shape. And that's when the truck driver got out of the truck, saw Bessie in bad shape, and pulled out his gun and shot her. And then he came over to my dog whimpering, and seeing my dog in such bad shape, he pulled out his gun and shot him too. And then, Your Honor, the truck driver walked over to me, still holding his gun, and said, And how are you? And Your Honor, I told him, I am perfectly fine. <laughs> Nothing wrong with me. Um, Funny story, you know, but as long as you say you're perfect, I'm perfectly fine. As long as you say that, you will never get the gospel. Never. If you roll through life on your high horse, you're probably not going to like Jesus that much. Uh, if you don't think you are a sinner, then, you prob- then this concept of the friend of sinners isn't going to sound that friendly to you. And so the only way to have God is to be poor poor in spirit, before God's grace can be amazing, it first has to offend the fool out of you. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't stay offensive. It becomes beautiful at some point. Um, but those who don't believe, it remains offensive. How dare you, Jesus? How dare you tell me I'm not enough? <sighs> to tell you that you were so bad, like you're so bad that God had to die. It's pretty bad. That, that we, with our fancy degrees and our nice homes, have no hope apart from Jesus coming and rescuing us. And, and we talk about, pro- oh man, prodigals running wild. But You know, as we acknowledge with our ears the sound of the good news. That God is God and we're not, which means we we need Him. We need Him to save us. God is God and we're not. But that also means, and this is where it comes into the, the area of doubting, that also means that God works in ways that we don't understand. You know, that verse, the secret things belong to the Lord. As God, He doesn't bend to our will. He doesn't bend to our expectations. And so in verse 32, I people, because in verse 32, Jesus tapped into this game that children would play. And it's kind of like today, you know how kids will play teacher and our classroom teacher. Kids will play church. Um, back in Jesus' day, they would play wedding. And someone, one of the kids would be the bride and one of the kids would be the groom and everybody else would kind of run around and dance and celebrate them because that's what they saw their parents doing it at weddings. Or they would play funeral and some poor kid would be the dead body and other kids would just sing sad songs and cry and just kind of walk around around him. And well, apparently, just like today, you know, some kids, they don't know how to play by the rules, right? And so the complaint would come up, you're not playing the game right. You're not supposed to cry. This is when you're supposed to dance. And I, I know it sounds childish, 
you know, think about all the times your kid has come to you and be like, my, you know, my sib, the sibling, my, like Sophie, so it's like Jude will say, Sophie's not playing right, right? Jesus is saying, it does sound childish, but he wants us to see that that's what we tend to do with God. That we, we put him in a box and we say, God, you play by our rules now. This is my game and you're going to do what I say. My expectations... You know, I, or I played the game. Now, now it's your part to play the game, God. Where, where, this is the part in the game where you bless me. This is the part where you do something really good for me. And now dance, monkey, dance. That's how we, we treat God. And Jesus is like, okay, God is God. And He doesn't play our games. He doesn't play even by the rules of our games. He doesn't kowtow to anyone. He wants to see that God moves in mysterious ways. And just because He isn't meeting our expectations and just because we're having doubts doesn't mean He's not at work for our good and for His glory. He's God and we're not. Okay, Which brings us to how we'll close. Just because John didn't get it didn't mean God wasn't at work. Uh, you know, that recompense and the judgment that he wanted while he was in that jail cell had come, but it was unlike anything that John the Baptist could have imagined because Jesus had come to save his people. He had come to bring justice. But instead of judging and condemning sinners, on the cross, Jesus himself became the judged. And he became the condemned. And the gospel is that Jesus took our biggest problem, sin, and our separation from God, and He kicked the tires and lighted the fires. He was judged unto death, so that if we are in Him, the judge looks at us and not only tells us that we're free to go, but then He goes as far as to adopt us into His family and then call us beloved. So friends, that's the good news. And and, and that's the certainty we can have. And so come what may, like dark, dark nights and all, because of the historical events of God dying and rising, we can trust that Jesus is the one. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you um, that even with our fickle faith and our doubts, uh, you welcome our questions. Um, Lord, there's surely not a doubt or a question that has been thought up in the past 2,000 years that hasn't already been addressed, that your gospel hasn't in some way comforted. So Lord, we ask that you would have mercy on those who doubt. And Lord, that you would use those dark night of the soul periods of our life to actually woo us back to you. Um, Lord, to grow a a more robust faith. Um, Lord, help us to come to Jesus all the time, and to remember that God, you're God, and we need you. And God, you're God, that means that we're not. And um, Lord, you don't always owe us an explanation for what you're doing, but we can trust that you're good, uh, and that you're working all things for our good and for your glory. So Lord, now as we uh, sing and as we prepare to come to the table, we ask that you would come and prepare our hearts to see this visual, tangible reminder of the gospel. Uh, Lord, we also pray that you would be with our fellowship meal after this, 
Uh, may we enjoy your good grace of food and friends. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.